Let us return then to that passage we read earlier from Numbers chapter 27. Numbers chapter 27. The title I'd like to give to our meditation tonight is Festy Females of Faith. Festy Females of Faith. Maybe some might be wondering what what does festy mean? Well, when it describes a person, it usually describes a, a small person who's pursuing a just cause with courage, with enthusiasm, and with determination. Now, we don't know that these five females were small, but they were small in the sense that they were regarded by society and by culture of the day as insignificant. And therefore, maybe the title is appropriate because we do want to meditate upon the five daughters of Zelophehad. And that's why I've given the title Festy Females of Faith. This chapter is in three parts. It deals first of all from verses 1 to 11 with the daughters of Zelophehad and their request that was brought to Moses and the leaders. And then we have, from verses 12 to 14, we have Moses viewing the promised land from Mount Abiram. And then the final section, we have the Lord appointing Joshua to succeed Moses. And that's from verse verses 15 to the end, to verse 23. What we have here in the initial verses is maybe not that significant to us today in our society, but it was immensely important for the people of God because the land did not belong unto the people. They were going to possess it, that is true, but it didn't belong to them. The land belonged to the Lord. So the Jews could not divide it up and do what they wanted with it. They were tenants, they were stewards, and they were under, therefore, the authority of the Lord. And for the tribes and for the families to, to maintain their inheritance was vitally important for them. When they had their inheritance, that was their foundation. They could build their lives, they could build their families around that. And for them not to have an inheritance was indeed a great blight to them. It would give them no stability whatsoever. And therefore, it was a very, very important thing to the people of that day. But nevertheless, we come to this chapter and we come to the section that we particularly want to highlight and we come with this truth always before us that modern men and women even in the 21st century have much that they can learn from the daughters of Selophophad. Much to be learned. What about then the other verses before we look at our main section this evening? Well, we have... Uh, Moses being reminded of his sin. 
verses 12 to 14. God here is telling Moses that he's to go up to this mount and he will have an excellent view of the promised land, but he's not going to go into it. He was a great man. He was a great prophet. We might describe him as a friend of God. He had unique and intimate communion with God. Joshua was going to replace him, but Joshua would not be the same as Moses. He was going to be the leader, certainly, but Moses was the lawgiver. Moses was the covenant mediator. Moses, we might say, had the ear of God in a way that Joshua did not. But nevertheless, even this great man who had sinned, when he smote the rock instead of speaking to it, he sinned before the Lord. He did not glorify God in front of the people. And because of that, he was not going to go into the promised land. And this is another reminder to us that God takes sin very seriously. Even with his favorites, even with those who lead godly lives, faithful lives, even those who are highly used and notable individuals in the kingdom of God. Yet, if they fall, they will be dealt with. God must deal with sin. But Moses' reaction was remarkable. He was told that he would not go in, he would die shortly. What was his reaction? Well, the remaining verses from verses 15 to 23 tell us. He was concerned about the people of God. He wanted the Lord to appoint someone to replace him. Because he knew that this large congregation, this large amount of the people of God, they needed someone to lead them, to guide them, to take them out when they go out to battle, and to bring them back in. They needed one who was under the guidance and the direction of God, who would lead them and guide them into the promised land, in order that they might not only capture the, uh, the promised land, but they might be able to divide it and to give... Uh, the tribes and the families their portion according to the way that God had set out. And this is what concerned Moses. He was one who truly loved the people of God and he wanted to see them safely settled and secured in the promised land. And his reaction therefore to his forthcoming de death and the obvious disappointment that he would not go into the promised land himself was remarkable. And it showed he was a man of faith, meek and obedient. He humbly accepted the will of God, no matter how much it might have hurt him. He recognized, thy will be done and not mine. And therefore we have Joshua who was appointed. And I don't know if it has anything to say to us as congregations. Here we have someone who was appointed to lead the people while the leader, the present leader, was still alive and well and was still leading. Obviously there would have been a transitional period and this is maybe what we have here. Joshua was officially recognized and appointed and set apart for the task but Moses would have been with him for some time and he would have learned from Moses. Moses. 
I think one thing we can certainly derive from this, although a congregation is not the same as leading a nation into the promised land, but long vacancies are not necessarily good things. It may be wise for a congregation to be vacant for some time. It's not good to rush in and try to settle these things. And maybe a time of when there is a vacancy might be a good thing for a congregation, but not for too long. And this should stir us up. This should indeed encourage us that we might call upon God that he would provide for the many vacant congregations that are in our denomination. It is not good. And we do pray that the Lord in his wisdom would indeed raise up men to fill these vacancies. Well, let us go back then to the first section that we're going to look at from verses 1 to verse 11. And here we have five festy females of faith. One or two things I want to say about this section that I trust will be edifying and relevant to us all. We can learn much about the way of faith from their behaviour. And I do put it to you, the first thing that we can learn is that they had to overcome obstacles. They had to overcome obstacles. I am speaking generally here, but I'm sure there's not many will disagree that we live in a time in the Christian church when easy believism is rampant. Easy believism is rampant. You can be a Christian. You can sit at the Lord's table. You can get all the trims and the trappings, of, if you like, of church membership. But it doesn't come with obstacles. It, it's easy believism. It's easy to profess the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is true faith? What is true faith as far as the Bible discerns it? Well, the Bible would tell us there are obstacles to overcome in our faith. And what we have before us in these 11 or so verses is obstacles that the five festy females of faith had to overcome. What are their obstacles they had to overcome? Well, they did not let their social standing deter them. What do I mean by that? Well, they were in a male-dominated society. Now that might not mean much to us today. We know there's a great feminist movement that's abroad that seems to be taking over that would tell us that women are second-class citizens and men indeed are overruling them continually and making their lives a misery. You would need to go back to biblical times and you need to live in the society that these ladies lived in to realize what it, would, what it would, would be like to live in a male-dominated society. They would be regarded almost as second-class citizens. And certainly as the children of Israel 
they would have been more highly regarded than women in the other nations round about them. Of that there is no question. But even in Israel, or even amongst the people of God before they went into the Promised Land, they did not have much rights. And they did not have a voice. And here, what do we find? We find these five ladies, they go before Moses, they go before Eliezer, the priest, they go before the princes and all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they present their case. Now that is remarkable. That would take a lot of clout. That would take a lot of enthusiasm and zeal for their cause. They didn't get a man to represent them. We don't know if they had any other men in their immediate family or their surrounding family. But they went and presented their case themselves. Why? Because they were sure, so sure of the justice of their cause. And they overcame the social standings that would have been there. That should have deterred them. They overcame that obstacle. And they were going to have to present their case in their own language and in their own tongue. Because they knew the validity of the case that they were going to present. As far as the law of inheritance was concerned at that time, basically the males inherited and the females, they received a dowry when they married. That was their inheritance. And they looked at the situation. We looked at last week where they were, the people were counted their father wasn't mentioned. Why? Because he was dead. And because the father wasn't mentioned, they weren't considered. And they realized then, as the people were going into the promised land, and believe you me, they had faith, they believed the people were going to go into the promised land, and more than that, they actually believed they were going to settle in the promised land, and that the land would be divided. But they were going to miss out. But they did not leave that obstacle to deter them. The fact that there were, they were women was not going to stop them from presenting their case before the whole of Israel. They were not ashamed and they were not frightened. They were not taken aback. They presented their own case. Here we have the younger generation showing up the older generation. Their father, we'll discuss it later on, but the father sinned. And as a, as a result, he, he wasn't going to go into the promised land. They may well, as a result of that, have been downcast and somewhat depressed. And they might have let that hinder themselves from pushing on. But no, this obstacle was to overcome. They were to go forward in faith. Their father might not have had faith, but they were going to go forward. Here was the younger generation outshining the older generation. 
Another thing, they didn't let their background deter them. Verse 3, our father died in the wilderness, and he was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died in his own sin and had no sons. We really don't know much about Zelophehad. We don't know the sin that's been referred to here. We do know for a fact that he was not involved in the rebellion of Korah. That's what we find in chapter 16. When Korah rose up with others to rebel against Moses and against his authority, Zelophehad took no part in that. Maybe his sin was that he believed the evil report that the ten spies brought back in chapter 14. Maybe he complained about the food. Many complained about the food. And because of that, they sinned in chapter 11. Maybe that's what his cause was. We don't know. Maybe he was bitten by the ser serpent. Again, when he complained and murmured, as many of them did. Maybe that was his sin. Or maybe he committed idolatry or immorality with the Moabites. We covered that a week or two ago. Whatever, we don't know. But he did sin. And he died in his sin. And he didn't inherit the inheritance. But you want to notice here, friends, that his offspring, his daughters, did not let their background, their family life, their father's sin hold them back. They were the daughters of Israel. They were in the covenant. And they believed God's promises to the people of God. And they were the people of God. And the land was before them. And they wanted their part of that land. And they would not let anything get in the way. They overcame all of these obstacles and pursued it by faith. Give us the land. Give us our inheritance. This is what we have. This is what the Lord has given to us. And there is a very important lesson for all of us here. Before us is eternity. Let's be clear. It's eternity. We're all on a one-way road. We're all going towards eternity. It's time to wake up. And it's time to lay hold on eternal life. It's time to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Because before us is heaven or hell. Hell's a terrible place. We cannot accurately describe it. We have the descriptions that we find in the word of God. And they are real and they are horrible. And we have very little about heaven, but we know, above all things, Jesus Christ will be there. Our Savior will be there. And many who have walked the narrow road that leads to life that we've known, they'll be there. And it will be bliss and happiness and peace and felicity and light and goodness and holiness. That's what's before us in heaven. And we need to be like these five daughters. 
Give me my inheritance. Go for it. Ask for it. Overcome the obstacles. And they didn't make excuses. They didn't say, well, our father fell. They didn't put any excuses. The land was before them. The people of God were about to go into it. And they wanted their piece of the cake. The lesson is, don't let anything hinder you from seeking the kingdom of God, however you want to describe it. Don't let anything hinder you seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let anything stop you from seeking to have an interest in that world that is to come. And you know, many people make excuses. Many people might make the excuse about their parents. They might say, well, my parents weren't God-fearing. My parents never took me to church. My parents never prayed with me. They never gave me a Bible. I was brought up in a godless home. So what? So what? You can't stand before God on that day and point to your parents. They will give account for what they did or did not do themselves. But you will give account what you've done with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the gospel. Do we not live in a day and in an age when no one will accept responsibility for their actions? Something happens to them, what do they do? The state must sort it out. Something happens to them, they did something, oh, it's because of this. It's because of this person or that person. They don't accept responsibilities for their own actions. Well, these ladies did. They had an opportunity and they grasped that opportunity. Don't make excuses about your siblings, about your background, about your upbringing, about your low life, about your poverty or whatever, about your neighborhood or your environment. What a terrible environment I was brought up in, you might say. What did I hear about Christ? What did, I, what did I hear about salvation? What did I know about the Bible? It doesn't matter. The opportunity is here before us tonight. The gospel has been proclaimed. Christ is freely offered to you as your Lord and Savior. You are to repent now. Many people might blame their education or lack of it. And many people might not even seek salvation because of their health. It takes up too much of their time and effort. They're, they're so involved and engrossed in their physical health. And they never think about their eternal well-being. Many people might think that they can use their intellectual ability or lack of it as an excuse. No, friends, there are no excuses, none whatsoever. You cannot blame your spouse, you cannot blame your children, you cannot blame your home circumstances, your occupation, and you cannot blame your minister. Your minister may be a good minister, he may be a bad minister, he may be mediocre, he may be a heretic. 
And that's not a pleasant ministry to be under. But at the end of the day, friends, if you're lost, if you're perished, it won't matter what your minister did or didn't do. The minister will give account and he will be rewarded accordingly and he will be held account accordingly. That's true. But you'll never escape. If your only excuse is my minister didn't preach the gospel it will cut no ice with God. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 before Paul gets to the gospel he outlines the fact that all are guilty before God. All the Gentiles and the Jews with all their privileges with the scriptures, with the covenants, with the prophets with the fact that God had chosen them they are culpable and they have no excuse before God. And in Romans chapter 3 verse 19, this is what it says. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that's the Jews, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What does it say? Every mouth may be stopped. When will every mouth be stopped? Every mouth will be stopped on that day when you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't have an excuse that day. Your mouth will be stopped. Your tongue will be silent. You'll not be able to blame anyone. There'll be no excuse. And this is what this passage is teaching us. These ladies cast aside all these obstacles, whatever they were, and they were going to go for their possession. They were going to go for what was their inheritance that God had given to them. And they were single-minded, and they were determined, and they were zealous. So zealous that they were prepared to stand by themselves before that great audience and fight for what belonged to them. That's the way you have to be. That pleases God. <clears throat> they had to overcome these obstacles. And they did. Paul reminds us. After his first missionary journey. He was on his way back to Antioch. In Syria. Which became basically the headquarters of the church. It had moved from Jerusalem and it was now in Antioch and Syria. And they had sent Paul and his associates out on their first missionary journey. And as they were working their way back to, to Antioch, they called in at the churches they had previously formed. And we're told in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, this is what they did at Mystria and Iconium and Antioch, another Antioch, not the Antioch they were sent from. And they were confirming the souls of the disciples. 
and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. There's no easy believism in the kingdom of God. We know we, we believe in what Jesus Christ has done, and we cannot add to that. But it is through much tribulation. And these ladies here showed us something of the tribulation when they overcame these obstacles and they were determined to exercise their, their faith and seek their inheritance. Secondly, they set a goal. They set a goal. Not only did they overcome obstacles, but they set a goal. Why should the name of her father be done away from among his family? Because he hath no son. Give unto us therefore a possession among the brethren of our father. They weren't interested in worldly things. They didn't want leadership positions in the Old Testament church. They didn't want to be like Moses and Eliezer. They weren't pushing for what many today are looking for. No, no. They had higher aims and higher goals. They showed their faith. They showed their faith in the God of the covenant. Israel, the people, were about to inherit this land and they wanted their share. That's their goal that was before them. They weren't looking for husbands. Well, that would come. And we'll come to that towards the end of the book. But first and foremost, they wanted what the others had. And they didn't have it at this time. And they recognized they had a need. And this is something that every one of us has to face. I'm particularly addressing here the unbeliever. The unbeliever needs to realize he has a need. He is deficient. There's something that he needs. They recognized it. And you must recognize it. Otherwise, the Lord Jesus will mean nothing to you. Nothing whatsoever. You'll never seek him. You'll never run after him. You'll never follow him. What must you recognize? You must recognize you're a sinner. And a, what a terrible thing it is to be a sinner. Because you're a sinner before God. A God who is not a sinner. A God who is holy and righteous. Yet, a God who recognizes the plight of the sinner and a God who has done something glorious in order to rescue the sinner. And what's he done? He sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to die in the room and place of sinners in order that the sinner might be reconciled to God. This is the goal that must be before us. We recognize that we're lost, we're done, we're helpless, we're hopeless. 
We're perishing. But there's that hope. There's the light at the end of the tunnel. What is it? It is Christ in all his fullness in the gospel. Jesus said, talking about the kingdom of God and the need to press into it. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. He's not talking about fighting in the kingdom of God. He's not talking about violence between people in the kingdom of God. He's talking about people who are earnest, who are metaphorically fighting to get into the kingdom of God. This is what these ladies exhibited here. There was drive, there was zeal, there was enthusiasm as, as they presented their case because they had a glorious goal before them. They were like the sprinter who sprints with all his energy and all his life as he sees the finishing line before him. He is running like mad to get to that finishing line. The kingdom of God suffereth violence. This is what Jesus wants to see. He wants to see people who are earnest, who are all out to get into that kingdom, and they'll overcome every obstacle. And the violent take it by force. That's the way you have to be. Christianity, faith, being saved is not a stroll in the park. It's not. We're not talking about adding to what Jesus has done. No. Don't think we're talking about that or working our way into the kingdom of God. No. But we are talking about being earnest, about taking up that cross daily, not just on the Sabbath day, or not just when you come to the house of God. Being a Christian is a 24-7, 365 day of the year. Not occupation, but calling. Once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. You don't take off your profession when you take off your clothes and when you retire at night. Even when you sleep, even when you dream, the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed, you're a Christian. And you're fighting the fight of faith. You're laying hold on eternal life. That's what you're doing. And we are not to be slothful in business, as Paul says to the Romans. And the business he's talking about is not commercial business. It's not business connected with the, the affairs of this world. It's spiritual matters. It is fighting the good fight of faith. Well, they had this goal before them. Briefly and thirdly, they achieved the end. Look at verse 7. Here's what the Lord says to Moses. The daughters of Salophaphad speak right. 
They presented their case well. They have a case, a just case. And their petition was answered. And this is the way for anyone who truly seeks the kingdom of God. Who truly wants to be saved. Who truly wants to have their sins forgiven. And to be reconciled to God. If this is your desire. If this is your hope. And if you pursue it. This is what will happen. They achieved their end. They got the blessing. They got their portion in the promised land. They were not going to lose out because their father had sinned. They were daughters of faith. And their faith was rewarded. And not only that, it became a statute. It became a judgment that affected all similar cases. They were not the only ones to benefit that is very often the way, friends, when we become Christians and when we follow the Lord Jesus, others benefit. Our families benefit. Our neighbors benefit. Our siblings, our parents, our neighborhoods. There's a blessing when they achieve their end. How is it then with yourself? Do we know anything of this pressing on? Where is this enthusiasm? Where is this determination that should characterize the Christian? Are we too laid back? Or do we need to stir ourselves up? Do we need some five festy females of faith to stir us up? Amen.